heart failure. Um, and there are key core principles which you will look to get in in, in terms of buzzwords, holistic management, making sure it's patient-centered and MDT delivered. Um, and that's something you can kind of just fit in as you answer, answer the question. Um, and as with all uh, things, it can be split into conservative medical and surgical or slash interventional aspects of treatment. So we'll start with the conservative aspects um, and arguably the most important thing being patient education. So there are fantastic resources which you can point patients to. So, for example, heartfailurematters.org is a fantastic website, even for your own interests to read. Um, and provides a lot of information for patients um, uh, to engage them, essentially, in their condition. Um, and it includes things like diet advice, so avoiding excess salt, uh, alcohol abstinence, especially, or, or reduction, especially in the presence of, let's say, alcohol-induced cardiomyopathies, smoking cessation, advice on fluid balance. So on the one end, avoiding large volumes of intake. And if you, especially if you have severe heart failure, potentially advising fluid restriction uh, to the other end of, of, especially if patients are on diuretics, making sure that people don't become dehydrated, especially let's say in hot days, if they have an episode of vomiting or diarrhea and actually educating patients to monitor their own fluid balance. So allowing them to make being aware of doing their own weights and allowing early escalation of care if needed. And that links to management being delivered by a multidisciplinary team. So psychologists, occupational therapists, encouraging patient people to adapt to their physical limitations, heart failure specialist nurses, and there, it's, which is a fantastic resource, which allows better access of healthcare to heart failure patients to ultimately ensure actions are taken early to prevent significant decompensations. Um, and also what's important is physical activity. So referring patients, if appropriate, to exercise programs to improve their conditioning, which has been shown to improve quality of life and reduce hospital admissions. And lastly, which kind of uh, go, moves on to more medical management, but managing important comorbidities such as hypertension, diabetes, cholesterol, optimizing them. Um, so that's your conservative aspect of management of um, heart failure. I'll next go on to talk about the medical management. And um, there are five key drugs uh, that, are, uh, that have very good evidence in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, but also are used in heart failure with moderately reduced ejection fraction. Although just as a caveat, there are no or less specific randomized control trials in this latter subgroup. Um, and these five drugs are, which we'll talk about uh, in a little bit of detail, ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, sodium glucose co-transporter 2 receptor blockers, and angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitors. And these all have been shown to have the benefits of reducing risk of death, hospitalizations, and increasing quality of life. So what we'll do is we'll just touch about a couple of points about uh, each drug. So ACE inhibitors, um, I think the first important thing to say is it's important to always try and dose up titrate these drugs to get those prognostic benefits because these prognostic benefits have typically been only shown at the higher doses. Um, now, a couple of key contraindications to be aware of that may kind of turn up in your, in your interview uh, scenarios are 
let's say if someone is pregnant, they have a history of bilateral renal artery stenosis or a history of angioedema, or if they have a particularly high potassium over five, there's caution over 5.5 would be a contraindication. Um, side effects to be aware of, things like coughing and hypotension. Um, there are just a couple of points to be aware of about ACE inhibitors. Beta blockers, uh, so they're initiated typically in clinically stable and uvolemic patients. And um, again, it's important to stress that one needs to up titrate the doses of these drugs. So let's say the target dose of bisoprolol is 10 milligrams over 24 hours, not the 1.25 that might be started whilst an inpatient. And the key contraindications to be aware of, severe asthma, peripheral vascular disease with, with critical limb ischemia, very low blood pressure, second degree uh, heart block um, or more. Uh, and side effects to be aware of include things like fatigue and impotence. So that's very relevant, let's say, if you're thinking about starting it in a young male. Um, uh, next, we'll talk about mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists. So these have been shown to have prognostic benefit in addition to ACE inhibitors and beta blockers. So this is spironolactone and a plerinone for all intensive purposes. The key side effects, they're potassium sparing diuretics, so they will raise your potassium, lower your sodium, and spironolactone can cause gynecomastia. So often empirically in males, we start them on a plerinone to avoid that risk. Next, we'll talk about sodium glucose co-transporter 2 receptor blockers. So they've been recommended in addition to ACE inhibitors beta blockers and mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Um, important contraindications to be aware of, pregnancy or breastfeeding, an EGFR of less than 20, hypotension, and don't use them in type one diabetics because they can cause a non-ketotic diabetic ketoacidosis, but non-ketotic. Um, the side effects to be aware of, so if you're ever counseling a patient when you're starting them, a potential increased risk of urinary tract infections. And they also actually, they are a diuretic. So care must be taken to not over diarrhease patients um, when starting them. And the final of the five angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitors, Entresto or Sacrubitil valsartan. And these can be considered directly in severe heart failure for those that have not used an ACE inhibitor. But typically their main indication is in people with heart failure, reduced ejection fraction to replace an ACE inhibitor. If they've had a month of an ACE inhibitor and maximum medical therapy, their ejection fraction is less than 35% and they're still symptomatic. Now, one thing to be aware of, if they're on an ACE inhibitor, they need a washout from the ACE inhibitor of 36 hours before you start the ARNI. Um, and the contraindications are that of essentially an ACE inhibitor. One slight difference, they're contraindicated at an EGFR of less than 30, while an ACE inhibitor contraindicated less than 25. So that's a slight difference um, with the ACE inhibitor. So they are the five pillars of heart failure treatments, chronic heart failure treatment. Um, Barrack, anything, and just a, a few kind of tidbits uh, about each. Anything to add? No, I, I love that you described them as pillars because that's what they are. These are the medications that you cannot fail to mention uh, in management of um, chronic heart failure. Um, and yeah, I mean, <laughs> there really isn't uh, much more to add. I suppose the ACE inhibitors obviously goes without saying ACE inhibitors 
if they're not tolerated well in terms of cough, you can switch to an ARB. Um, Which we'll talk about soon. <laughs> oh, fun, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's really good. I mean, just be just to be aware of the SGLT2 inhibitors, I think um, I noticed that uh, this year a lot of candidates still weren't really aware of them. Um, popular, I'm sure people are more people are aware of them next year. So I think they're really things that you do need to know about um, and mention when you're talking about management of heart failure. Um, so yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Okay. So there are a few other drugs in heart failure, um, just to be aware of, but they are not the, let's say, five key pillars. So diuretics, um, such as frizomide, bumetanide, and the effects on mortality have not really been that well studied, but they have been shown to reduce hospitalizations and increase quality of life. But to note, uh, an, angio, uh, an ARNI, an ACE inhibitor, and a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist, and an SGL2 inhibitor, they're all also, they also possess diuretic qualities. So one needs to be aware of co-prescribing um, both uh, and um, making sure you don't over-diurese. Angiosemptin, two receptor blockers, as Barrick mentioned. If you can't tolerate an ACE or an ARNI, that's your second line treatment. Evabrazine, uh, a funny type sodium blocker, has been shown to have some prognostic benefits. So they act on the sinoatrial node, so you need to be in sinus rhythm, have a heart rate of greater than 70, have a left ventricular ejection fraction of less than 35%, and be on maximum medical therapy, including a beta blocker. And practically, evabrazine is used in heart failure, often when a beta blocker can't be used. Um, and then finally, hydralazine and isorbite dinitrite. So the evidence for this comes from a, a relatively small trial in Afro-Caribbean male patients. Um, and this trial uh, was when this medication was added to an ACE inhibitor, a beta blocker, and a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist. And it was found to reduce mortality in hospitalizations in patients specifically with an ejection fraction of 35% and New York Heart Association symptoms of three or more. So that's actually where the evidence is uh, for hydralazine and isorbite dinitrite, um, something just to be aware of, essentially. Uh, we're next gonna talk about device therapies uh, before we do um, anything more to say before, before we go on to that topic. Uh, no, so I think just the only thing to say is when you're, obviously for the first batch of med uh, medications, uh, especially ones that can affect potassium, so that's your ACE inhibitors and your MRAs, just whenever you're, I think, getting to the habit of whenever you're talking about initiating them, say that you'll be monitoring using these afterwards, uh, because that's an absolute must. And same for diuretics um, as well. When you first start, I think once patients established on them, it's, you can taper down a bit, but once you, when you're first starting, you just need to keep an eye on the potassium. Um, other things, you're exactly right. So traditionally we say that um, the first batch of medication we've talked about, uh, so that's an ACE, ACE inhibitor, beta blockers, MRAs, um, Will have prognostic, um, so they have a benefit, mortality benefit, as well as a uh, symptom benefit. Whereas diuretics traditionally only thought to have a symptom benefit, but no current, no proven mortality benefit. And then the other medications, ivabradine, hydralazine, isobutyl, dinitrate, not 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 as commonly used uh, in in heart failure. So only really get onto those medications and talk about them if you absolutely certain of why you're using them. Um, and there's one thing, oh yeah, the one other thing I wanted to talk about, um, well, I'm just gonna mention metolazone. Um, so, you know, frizomide is a very, uh, frizomide is of 
I know the other ones have diuretic qualities, but freeze wine is the most powerful diuretic of the ones you mentioned, uh, more so than ACE to ACE inhibitism, MRAs. So things like spironolactone, actually their diuretic effect is more seen at doses like 100 or 200 that you mm. prescribe for liver disease patients. Um, but if patients are not responding well to uh, diuresis on frusamide, you can A, try switching to bumetanide, which uh, some patients respond be better to because it's uh, got better absorption um, when patients have gut edema with their heart failure. That's what, the, that's what we would think. Um, and then secondly, a very powerful diuretic that's normally prescribed on a once every other day dosing um, is metolazone. So it's a thiazide-like diuretic. Uh, so it's a good one to, I think a really impressive candidate would be able to talk about using fruzamide to diarrhea someone. But if they if they weren't responding well to that, we can consider metolazone. But that really largely is an, I've largely seen it used as an inpatient. Sometimes it's used as an outpatient, but you have to then be saying, you know, caveat it very close monitoring but uh so yeah i think the five out of five answer in terms of medications for diuresis is mentioning metolazone um and the need to monitor it yeah fantastic okay um thanks so we'll next talk about device therapies so this is your implantable cardioverted defibrillator or your cardiac resynchronization therapy and we'll go through each so your ICD, that can be indicated in primary or secondary prevention to reduce the risk of sudden cardiac death. And an awareness of the indications is something you should know. So indications for primary prevention. So this is in the case of when people have an ejection fraction of less than 35%, despite optimal medical therapy for three months, and they are symptomatic with a New York Heart Association class of two to three, and just to, as a caveat, the evidence is better for people with heart failure secondary to, secondary to ischemic heart disease uh, compared to the non-ischemic cardiomyopathies. And the key contraindications to be aware of, it's not indicated if they've had an acute MI within the last 40 days, where paradoxically actually worser outcomes are seen and not if you have a New York Heart Association class of four, unless there's a plan for further optimization, such as a CRT or, a, or more advanced heart failure management, such as a left ventricular assist device or a cardiac transplant. Um, with the, the thought process, essentially, that someone with that kind of symptomatology doesn't have a long life expectancy. And the whole point of the ICD is to essentially prevent inappropriate malignant arrhythmias um, before end of life. Um, now, the secondary... We, 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 normally, we normally say actually a, a year is a good, a good, yeah. good rule of thumb, uh, a fair one to quote an interview. So you need to have a life expectancy of more than a year, at least, at least a year. Exactly, yeah. Um, so secondary prevention um, indications include things such as a hemodynamically unstable ventricular arrhythmia 48 hours after an acute MI with no clear reversible cause found. And as Bowerick says, a good functional status with a life expectancy of over a year. Um, now, important points that patients need to be counseled on or you need to think about when an ICD is fitted are the possibility of inappropriate shocks and, and potential pain and discomfort that can cause. The fact that patients will need to go through a generator change or a battery change every five years, typically. The fact that it can affect driving, so if they have a, a shock, uh, inappropriate or, or appropriate six months off um, and that the ICD will actually be looked to be turned off one day 
with its principal indication to prevent premature death, but when a natural death occurs, it should be turned off to prevent inappropriate shocks, essentially. They're the, the points you need to be thinking about with ICD therapy. Um, before we, we move on, God, sorry. Any, anything, uh, anything to add? No, I thought it was really good. So I think just to summarise that, because I know devices get everyone really, really um, uh, confused sometimes. So ICD, if you've got an EF of less than 35% and a life expectancy of more than a year, you qualify for an ICD. The other situation is if you have an EF of less than 40% uh, post myocardial infarction. So it's not straight away post, as Rahul mentioned, you have to have had at least had um, you know, six to eight weeks of optimal medical therapy. So that's all the meds we talked about previously. Um, and that gives the heart a chance to remodel and recover because you often see an impaired EF straight after a heart attack, which will recover over the next six to eight weeks with good therapy. So if they've been tried on good therapy for six to eight weeks and the EF is still less than 40%, they get an ICD. Otherwise, for normal heart failure patients, it's less than 35% and a life expectancy of more than a year. And the final point we're all about the ICD needing, needing to be turned off I remember when I was an SHO, I was always really impressed with one of the, there's one consultant in particular uh, uh, who always counseled patients when he was talking about ICDs, about the fact that it needed to be turned off. And it's always really impressive. And it's nonetheless impressive when people do it in interviews. So a real five out of five candidate whenever they're talking about ICD therapy uh, for heart failure, we talk, we'll also talk about the need to discuss with the patient that it will not be on permanently and forever because it really helps manage expectations at the end of the line. Uh, so that's a really nice point to try and bring into your answer if you can. Thanks. Okay. Uh, the next uh, device we'll talk about is cardiac resynchronization therapy. Um, and the benefits in the correct cohort uh, have been found that it reduces morbidity, mortality, and increases quality of life. And the indications, the key indications we'll talk about first, are if you have an ejection fraction of less than 35% and are symptomatic despite optimal medical therapy, you're ideally in sinus rhythm where the evidence is better, but it can be given an AF. And you have a left bundle branch block with a QRS width of, of greater than 130 milliseconds, although the evidence is better if it's uh, broader, so greater than 150 or right bundle branch block with a QRS length of greater than 150 milliseconds. They are the key core uh, indications for CRT. There are also certain scenarios where it could be considered. So for example, if you have heart failure, uh, an ejection fraction of, of less than 35% despite worsening symptoms on optimal medical therapy, and you have a pacemaker with a significant proportion of RV pacing, then an upgrade to a CRT can be considered. Uh, again, this would be an MDT consultant-led decision. Um, they are your key indications to, to be aware of for a CRT. And factors that one would consider uh, when predicting the benefit of the CRT are, well, firstly, the ability of the myocardium to reverse remodel. So for example, if you have ischemic cardiomyopathy with significant scarring of the myocardium, this would be less likely to improve. Uh, the QRS, QRS width is also important. So longer the width, the more potential benefit. And some trials have also actually shown harm if the QRS is less than 130 milliseconds. And that's where these numbers come from. Um, and also the QRS morphology. So a left bundle branch block pattern has best evidence, better evidence than a right bundle branch pattern. So that's a bit about CRT and, and the, the basics of what you need to know. Uh, anything 
before we move on to add Barry? Um, no, I think uh, CRT is definitely something you should be thinking about for all heart uh, for heart patients. So you should always cross your mind: Am I going to think about a CRT here? And if not, why not? Um, and you went through the indications really nicely. Essentially, just people are aware what CRT does is uh, a more efficient form of pacing. So you go from a very wide QRS as your normal uh, QRS morphology to a narrow QRS. Um, and you bring both ventricles in line to be pumping at the same time as each other, or you're stimulating at the same time as each other. So in that way, you get more effective contraction. That's the hypothesis. Uh, so you end up with a narrower QRS than their normal QRS. Um, and yeah, I think that's a really nice point about the factors that predict benefit for CRT. And just it's a nice thing to know, and if you can bring it up, um, you know, with a CRT, unlike pacemakers, you're aiming to pace all of the time. So with pacemakers, you're trying to reduce as much as possible how much you're pacing um, or how much, yeah, how much pacing you're doing because it's non-physiological. Whereas a CRT, actually you see greatest benefit when you have a pacing percentage, a ventricular pacing percentage of over 99%. As soon as it starts getting to 95% or less, um, then you start to see non-response. So that's when you're asked to see a a heart failure patient uh, and they've got a CRT and if you can start saying things oh check their bi-v pacing percentage their biventricular pacing percentage um you know, it really does imply a good level of knowledge um so those are maybe one or two buzzwords you want to bring in when you're talking about CRT yeah um re really good point to make um okay uh we we're going to end this uh chronic heart failure talk with uh, a little bit about advanced heart failure treatments and this is more for interest and you, you really just have to have a very limited awareness of this for an SD4 interview. Uh, so we won't, that will be reflected by the fact that we won't go into great depth, but there are certain options. Um, so uh, options would include inotropic therapy. So this would be a, a consultant led decision and examples include things like dopamine or dobutamine. Uh, there are always risks of these procedures. The two main things to be aware of are inducing ischemia or cardiac arrhythmias. And actually they're often used in a palliative setting really to improve quality of life. So that's your inotropes. Renal replacement therapy is another potential option. This is a second line therapy if there's a failure to respond to diuretics. Uh, there's also the option of mechanical circulatory support. So this can be used in the short term if there's critical end organ hypoperfusion states acting as a bridge to more permanent interventions. And then you also have longer term treatments, such as a left ventricular assist device or an impeller device. Uh, and these can be used as a long term thing or actually, again, as a bridge to something like a heart transplant, which is another advanced heart failure treatment. And of course, something we shouldn't also forget is palliative care as well. Um, yeah, if, if, uh, th if things don't work out, essentially, but also actually arguably early involvement of the palliative care team in patients with advanced heart failure is equally as important yeah um they're really nice i i think yeah your point is completely better. like we shouldn't be if you start to talk about heart transplant you've gone very far through your heart failure station um but i think one thing is a useful kind of catch-all phrase is uh to perhaps discuss if you're thinking about that kind of thing maybe say something along the lines of i would discuss my consultant about um advanced heart failure treatment options such as um, which 
you know, such as involvement of a heart transplant centre and see if there's anything else we should or could be considering. And that's more than I think it's important for centres to be aware and trainees to be aware of when patients have reached the end of the road at their centre. There may be something else that some of the transplant centres can offer, but it's only if these patients fulfil a number of different criteria. Because you can imagine the supply of hearts is very limited, so they are very particular about which patients respond. I think one particular case, and I, the only reason I mentioned it just because of COVID, um, young myocarditic patients um, can often be very, very unwell and can often uh, have very impaired LVs, a single digit LV uh, ejection fraction. And those patients can sometimes be, uh, it can sometimes be useful to think about early referral to a heart transplant centre um, because they can better manage them with LV assist devices, inotropes and transplant as needed. Um, it's much harder to do that as they, if they go off, for example, overnight and, and you know, myocarditis is reversible. So that's a one, just with COVID, just, you think see that it could be something they touch upon, so especially, unless you see a level of COVID myocarditis, but you certainly do see it like uh, influenza myocarditis. Mm. Uh, so that's for interest sake and uh, I suppose a good thing to be aware of. It's very topical. <laughs> I, yeah, I think that's a really good point, actually. The, the whole point of being aware of these for the interview scenario is knowing that they're there to escalate to uh, and being aware that that is part of your thought process and management plan. Um, well, no one's going to ask you how to use an impeller or how it works. That's far more than you should and you should need to know. But just knowing that LV assist devices do exist is, I think, completely understandable and impressive. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, so thank you very much for listening. Um, I think any, anything more to add, Barry? No, just actually one more thing. I think uh, you you did kind of go on about it earlier, but I just want to really hammer home the point. I think heart failure is one of the, one of the ther- one of the um, conditions where you want the patient to take ownership, and it does really really need an MDT approach. So always always think: Have I mentioned the MDT enough? Because it is the heart failure nurses the um, the the heart failure MDT, the imaging team are so, so important to how you manage someone's heart failure. And the patient is the centre. So if the patient doesn't take ownership and is non-compliant with their meds, you're never, you can do as many fancy things as you want, but you'll never, you'll never win. So this is the one where you really, really need to think about getting the patient involved and taking ownership over their condition early. Uh, and if you haven't mentioned daily weights, you've gone wrong. <laughs> Yeah, they're, they're, you know, your, your answer should be littered with these buzzwords and it might make you laugh a bit after, but um, it's yeah. a sign you're going, you're going in the right direction if you're saying all these things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, that, so that brings an end to our knowledge video about chronic heart failure. Um, thanks for listening. Thanks very much.